you've probably noticed that the title to this morning's sermon is Isn't It Ironic? Now I'd imagine some of you know the song that that's a reference to. If you do know the song that I'm talking about, uh, you'll hopefully realise that the only thing that's ironic about that song is that it's supposed to be about irony, but the writer doesn't really seem to understand what irony is all about. If you want to know what irony is, don't ask a pop star. Someone you could ask about irony is the Apostle John. You see, I've been preparing this sermon this week. I've been looking at John chapter 19, and one of the things that most stands out for me in this chapter is that John is a master at using irony to get across his point. On one level, John is just giving us a blow-by-blow account of what happened when Jesus went on trial before Pilate. But on another level, John is showing us there is an incredible disconnect between what we see in Pilate's palace and what is actually going on in reality. And so John teaches us by using irony. He shows us who Pilate really is, who the Jewish leaders really are, and most importantly of all, who Jesus really is. And so this morning we want to see both what's happening in the events of this passage, but but also the message that John is encouraging us to see. Well, let's look through the passage. I want us to just go through the story first of all, and then I want to pick out three particularly ironic statements and towards the end of the sermon. Now, at the start of this passage, we're following on from what we saw last week. At the start of the passage, Pilate has got this enormous dilemma. He knows that Jesus is innocent. And he really doesn't fancy torturing this innocent man to death. And yet, he also knows that if he was to just let Jesus go, it would be like kicking a hornet's nest. And so Pilate is determined to find some sort of solution. He wants to let Jesus go without inciting a riot. And in verse 1, Pilate thinks he has it. He took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, that seems like a strange way to treat an innocent man, doesn't it? These soldiers, they take Jesus, they jokingly dress him up like a king, they laugh at him, they punch him, they beat him, and of course, they whip his back. They turn him into a bloody mess. And then, the cherry on top, the final humiliation. They take these awful, jagged thorns, they twist them into the shape of a crown, and they ram it onto Jesus' head. And Jesus, as you can imagine, he looks like the most dismal, most pathetic creature imaginable. But that's all part of Pilate's plan. You see, Pilate reckons if he can just pile on enough humiliation, then these Jewish leaders are going to look at Jesus, they're going to see just how pathetic he looks, and they're hopefully going to back off. They'll decide he's suffered enough. And so in verse 5, Pilate puts Jesus on display. And he says, Here is the man. Or a better way of translating it, I think, would be, Behold the man. And that line that Pilate uses is absolutely dripping with sarcasm. Here's the man you say is so dangerous. 
Just look at him. Covered in blood, bruises all over his face, wearing this ludicrous crown and this farcical robe. Here's the man you're scared of. Pilate is hoping that this will be enough to appease these leaders. Almost, in a sense, to to shame them into backing off. But it's not. Notice verse 6. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! These men are not going to back down. And at this point, I think Pilate thinks to himself, well, maybe then I can get Jesus to back down. Maybe if he was to take back some of what he said, then I'll be able to get out of this situation. So Pilate goes back into Jesus and he asks some questions. But Jesus refuses to get sucked in. You can sense Pilate's amazement in verse 10. Do you know who I am? I can set you free or I can have you killed. If it was me, if I was in Jesus' place and Pilate was to say that to me, I know exactly what I would say. I would say, I will do anything you want me to do. I will say anything you want me to say. Just please, please don't crucify me. But not Jesus. Jesus looks Pilate in the eye and he knows perfectly well that there is someone more powerful with more authority even than the Roman governor. Verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And you can imagine how frustrated Pilate must have been. He wants Jesus to just give him something that he can work with. Something that might allow him to set him free. You can almost imagine Pilate scratching his head and thinking to himself, does this man actually want to die? But still, Pilate tries to set him free. Notice what the Jews shout in verse 12. They're getting fed up of of Pilate prevaricating. They say in verse 12, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Now, That is absolutely explosive. Uh, Caesar is another name for the emperor of the Roman Empire at this point. At this moment in time, it was Tiberius. Tiberius was an incredibly paranoid man. He certainly wasn't the sort of man who would think twice about having you killed, no matter what position you held, if he believed that you were maybe conspiring against him. And these priests, whenever they say this, they know exactly what they're doing. They're dangling a sword over Pilate's head. They're saying to Pilate, give us what we want or we're going to get word to Caesar. We're going to have a chat with him about where your loyalties actually lie. They're they're blackmailing him. They have got Pilate exactly where they want him. And so in verse 15, they shout, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate responds by saying, Shall I crucify your king? They respond by saying, We have no king but Caesar. And so finally, in verse 16, they get exactly what they want. Pilate agrees to crucify 
Jesus. Now next week, we're going to come to the most solemn, yet most precious part of all of Scripture. We're going to see Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins. But for now, what I want us to do is to see some of the irony of this passage. And I want us to focus in on three different statements. Two of them are made by Pilate. One is made by the Jewish leaders. And I want us to see how God, or sorry, how John, and God inspiring John, t- takes these words, the words of those people, and yet he uses them to press home the gospel. The first statement I want us to think about is Pilate's in verse 10. Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Now on the face of it, that's true enough. Pilate is the Roman governor. If he says that Jesus should live, then there's nothing that Jesus' enemies can do about it. If he says that Jesus should die, then he's got a whole squadron of soldiers who are ready to put Jesus to death. And yet, this passage raises a question for us. How powerful is Pilate really? And the answer, surely, is that he's nowhere near as powerful as he likes to think. I mean, he's determined to let Jesus go. He tries everything he can to let Jesus go, and yet he never actually manages it. He's too weak and too indecisive to do what he actually wants to do. He's like grass, just blowing in the wind, whatever way the wind blows. Now, I think you get a sense of how indecisive he is when you see how often he comes and goes from Jesus to the Jewish leaders. Chapter 18, verse 29, he goes out. Chapter 18, verse 33, he comes back in. Chapter 18, verse 38, he goes back out again. In between chapter 18 and chapter 19, he obviously comes back in again. Verse 4, he goes out. Verse 9, he comes back in. In, out, in, out, in, out. And I think that speaks volumes. He just can't make his mind up. And then, you compare him to Jesus. The one who supposedly is the victim. The one who supposedly is in Pilate's hands. And Jesus is absolutely single-minded. He's not going to play games. He's not going to answer Pilate's questions. He knows what his mission is. He's going to the cross and nothing, absolutely nothing, is going to stop him. Here's the ironic thing. Who is it that's really in control? It's Jesus. Some of you may well know that famous poem called Invictus. Well, surely Jesus is the only man in all of history who could actually read that poem, say the words, without being completely delusional. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And even at this point, when Jesus technically is a prisoner, he is the master of his own fate. That's the first irony that we see. 
The second really ironic moment I want us to think about, and I'm just planning to skim over this one for time reasons, but verse 15, the Jewish leaders say, We have no king but Caesar. Do you remember back in the early 90s, Jerry Adams was caught on camera singing God Save the Queen? And you remember how shocked all of the, the different Sinn Féin members were whenever that video came out? Or do you remember that time that Ian Paisley, he was giving that speech in Belfast and he signed off by saying, Chucky Arla, and the newspapers absolutely lost it? Well, of course you don't, because neither of those things actually happened. But they are the equivalent of what's actually happening here. These Jewish leaders, they're supposed to be the leaders of the nation. They are supposed to be loyal to God who has said that he is the king of Israel. They're supposed to recognise that God has appointed the sons of David to rule on his behalf. They're supposed to be waiting for the Messiah that God has promised, the son of David who is going to establish his kingdom and rule in righteousness. And yet, here they are, and what are they saying? We have no king but Caesar. They're completely abandoning the promises that God has given to the Jewish people. I mean, it is absolutely impossible to exaggerate just how diabolical this was. And yet, it goes to show just how much Jesus had got under their skin. He had exposed them for who they really were. And they were so, so desperate to get rid of Jesus that they were willing to give up and to repudiate everything that gave their nation any value whatsoever. Effectively, these men were every bit as trapped as Pilate. They had backed themselves into a corner. And now they simply cannot stop. No matter how much the path they're taking destroys them, they can't turn back. They go to the logical conclusion. And I think there's a warning there for you if you're currently rejecting Jesus. And even if you're a professing Christian, but there's an area of your life where you're rejecting his rule. I want you to see these men and I want you to realise this is where you end up. Hardened and trapped in this spiral of destructiveness. You need to be very careful if this is how you're responding to Jesus. The final irony, and the most important one, is in verse 5. Behold the man. Now Pilate is being sarcastic here. Here is Jesus. He has been beaten up. He's bloodied. He's bruised. His back has been ripped open. He is a figure of fun. And he's someone that you would flinch from unless you had a particularly strong stomach. He is a mess. And so Pilate says, Behold the man. Is this really the man that you've worked yourselves up over? Is this really the man who's troubling you so much? Just look at how pathetic he is. And yet... 
even though Pilate has no idea of the significance of the words he's using, he absolutely nails it, doesn't he? Because Jesus is the man. If you go back to the very start of the Bible, Adam and Eve ruin the world by sinning against God. They bring God's curse upon themselves. They bring the curse upon the planet and upon every single member of the human race. But do you remember what happens next? God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3. Sometimes that promise is called the first gospel. And it's called that because it's the very first time that God promises he's going to conquer Satan and he's going to put things right. But do you remember what is at the heart of that promise? A man. A descendant of Adam and Eve. And so all the way through the Old Testament, God's people are waiting for this man. And here we are. We're in John's Gospel. John has already told us in chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh. And here's Pilate. And he thinks he's only speaking to the people out there, the people in the crowd outside the palace. But really, God is taking his words. He is amplifying them. And he's making sure that the whole world, right through the centuries, hears him loud and clear. Behold the man. The man who was promised. The man who changes everything. The man who faced the most intense trial it's possible to face. The man who was flogged and beaten and whipped and yet set his face like flint towards the cross and kept on going. Behold the man. The man who held his nerve under pressure. Not just a man, but the man. The second Adam. The man who stands in the place of redeemed mankind and conquers Satan, sin and death. Behold the man. You know, I like what David Murray has to say about this. He says, if these words were being uttered on earth, how much more were they being uttered in heaven? If these words were in the mouth and the lips of a sinful man, how much more were they not on the lips of the angels of glory? He goes on to say, Has there ever been a man like this? Those angels who have seen all of history, as they saw his wonderful example of sinless humanity, was not all of heaven saying, Behold the man. And that brings us to the most important question of all. What is Jesus to you? Is he a man or is he the man? Is he your one and only hope for life and death and salvation? Is he your one and only hope for doing battle with sin and turning your life around? Is he the one who moves your heart in worship and praise and amazement? Is he the one you long to speak to other people about? 
Is, is Jesus the one that you turn to when you're at your wit's end? Is Jesus the model that you're shaping your whole life around? Is Jesus the one who dictates how you work, how you play, how you relate to other people? Is Jesus the one who calls your shots about how you use your time or your money or your abilities? Is he the one who gives you assurance of forgiveness whenever you sin? Is he the one you're trusting in for everlasting life? Is he the one who gives you hope and courage as you go through fiery trials? Is Jesus the one you marvel at when you see on the one hand his holy hatred of sin and on the other hand his holy love for sinners? Is Jesus the one you marvel at when you think of his commitment to the plan of salvation and to his perseverance on the cross? What is Jesus to you? Is he the one who makes your heart sore? Is he a man or is he the man? It's the most important question you can ever ask because everything, absolutely everything, depends on how you answer it. Let us hear Pilate's words loud and clear and let each and every one of us every single day say to our own souls, Behold, Jesus Christ, the man. Let's pray. Our Father, We praise you because Pilate spoke far better than he realised. We praise you because out of the mouth of this unbelieving, rebellious, pathetic man, you announced this incredible, universe-transforming truth. Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ, the man, the word became flesh. The man who was promised. The man who conquered Satan, sin and death. The man who stood in our place. The man who endured the cross. The man who died and rose from the grave and is seated at your right hand. Father, we praise you for this man. This man who secures our salvation. This man who deals with our sin. This man who strengthens us and helps us and gives us hope. Father, we praise you for the man. We pray, Father, you would help us to love the man more. We pray that you would help us to love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our strength. Father, we pray that you would help us to marvel. Help us especially to marvel as we see him going to the cross as we go through John in these next number of weeks. We pray that you would amaze us as we see the very pinnacle of the human race. Father, we also pray this morning for those who do not know Jesus as the man. We pray for those to whom he's just a man, or he's just a very important man, or he's just a great teacher, or he's just someone who helps them, but they have some of it to do themselves. We pray that you would help them to see 
that Jesus is the man and that if they do not understand that and if they do not live in the light of that well then they can have no part in his salvation. Father we pray that you would open many many eyes. We pray that you would help many many people to see who Jesus truly is. Father we ask it in his name. Amen.